0: .org. Enjoy. My name is Chelsea Sandy sheeter I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Economics at Aoyama Gakuin University in Tokyo, Japan, and I'm speaking from my home in Tokyo, Japan today, and I'm speaking with Sayaka Chetani. Um, would you like to introduce yourself, Sayaka? Sure.
1: My name is Sayaka Chattani. I'm an assistant professor in the history department of National University of Singapore. And I'm speaking from my
0: office in the U.S. OK. So, um, and today, I'm really excited to talk with Sayaka, whom I've known for a long time now, <laughs> um, about her book, uh, The title of the book is Nation Empire, Ideology and Rural Youth Mobilization in Japan and its Colonies. It's on Cornell University Press, um, published in 2018. And I'm really excited to talk about this book. I got to see a little bit of the research process from the the outside, and I'm excited to hear um, some of the stories uh, a little bit more in depth. So I would actually like to ask you about your road to this book but I also want to maybe break that question down because I think that there's um, a road to your research question Mm -hmm. and then you undertook a really ambitious research program
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So I would like also to hear about you know how you designed your research went through that research and then how you made it possible to condense it into one Book. So if you want to start with just talking about how you came to your research question.
1: Right, by the way, thank you Chelsea for interviewing me in this format because this is so funny because we are we have been really good friends for a decade
0: now. Over (laughs) a decade, yes.
1: Okay, so as Chelsea knows, that I'm a convert from political science to history. I was in a PhD program uh, studying political science before, and then I was hit by a revelation that that, that was not my uh, discipline and the discipline for me. But since the time that I was studying political science, I was always interested in the issue of nationalism, but not in the sense that, why people have a uh, strong nationalism but in the in a more concrete sense that like why do people fight for it or why do people mm-hmm. risk their lives mm-hmm. serve in the army and this is this was a big mystery to me because mm-hmm. i grew up in a sort of you know peace loving <laughs> society mm-hmm. in japan everyone emphasizes pacifism and the idea of um, not going to war is a virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so studying the military as a political scientist was, was not really um, answering that question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's why I, I kind of searched for a new discipline and I met historians in our mm-hmm. <laughs> old school, um, Columbia University. And then I decided to switch because um, our advisor told me that I, don't, I didn't really have to become a historian, but I, history is a vast territory, and you can do whatever you want. So basically, I carried along with me the old mm-hmm. question of why do people fight? You know? mm-hmm. And I was, I was a little bit of a geek in terms of language learning. So mm-hmm. I studied Chinese in Taiwan. <laughs> and I studied Korean as a hobby by then. So I decided to use all of my linguistic backgrounds to tackle this question. And uh, naturally, the Japanese empire is such a big yeah both a blind spot for me and also a huge issue in Mm -hmm. history. So I decided Mm -hmm. to look at the Japanese empire. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so as you can see, my book is a comparison of Mm -hmm. uh, small villages across the empire, one Mm in Tohoku, Northern Japan, Taiwan, and Korea. So that comparative framework totally Mm -hmm. came from, sort of a political science mm-hmm. <laughs> dealing with that question we have yeah. to compare and mm-hmm. see and mm-hmm. I I was kind of facing this taboo of mm-hmm. saying that those young people who believed mm-hmm. in Japanese ideology or Japanese mm-hmm. nationalism inside colonial societies mm-hmm. they were you know the standard understanding is that they were coerced they mm-hmm. were Brainwashed. Yeah, so they didn't have any agency to mm-hmm. think correctly, or they were hiding true feelings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was such a taboo to compare even mm-hmm. their uh, upbringing and mm-hmm. those who grew up in Japan and became soldiers. Mm-hmm. There was an assumption that they were totally different. Right. Um. So, luckily, I was not doing academic work in east asia because this would have been yeah uh, you know that was
0: that was something i wanted to ask you and i and i i hope that people who do not do east asia will listen to this but the there's very much an ongoing history war Hmm. about the historical war um which includes uh, in east asia which includes um you know the histories of, of imperialism and colonialism And I think that there's much less developed discussions um, about—I mean, you don't necessarily have to use post-colonial theory, but there there are much less discussions about the colonial legacy in any way other than, you know, within a very firm kind of nationalistic historical framework. Yeah,
1: and sentiment yeah. is so strong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally appreciate. But at
1: the same time, as a scholar, I was curious, and mm-hmm. so that was my
0: chance to do the comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so you did the comparison, and it sounds so make it sounds so, um, it sound so simple. Um, but you compare these three sites in, uh, as you mentioned, in northeast Japan, in in uh, South Korea, and in Taiwan. Um, and now I want to to say something though about what's impressive about these sites, and and then ask you how you came to decide the sites because you also did not choose uh, urban centers, right? This is also really important for your understanding of this. You chose rural areas, and many studies tend to focus on urban areas. Sometimes I think it's just easier. All the sources are collected there. The archives are collected there. I think there can be something harder about deciding you're going to go um, <laughs> to a, to a kind of rural area. So how did you choose these three sites? Right.
1: I actually have four sites. The fourth site. Uh, one, right. 3.5. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Uh, Chelsea actually came to Okinawa when I was doing field research and then uh, the earthquake happened and that was huge drama for us. You were trapped in Okinawa, right? Anyway, so yeah, I had four sites. Um, Each site was very different in terms of how I picked it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So for Tohoku, it's it's called Shida Village. It doesn't exist anymore. It was mm-hmm. part of a bigger city now, Osaki City. I went to Miyagi because our senpai, our friend, uh Christopher Craig was already doing research there mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to look at countryside, especially in Tohoku, mm-hmm. to see any any sort of uh transition for the metropolitan Nationalization, colonization of the mm-hmm. periphery and the periphery of Taiwan and Korea. So mm-hmm. I asked Christopher how how the sources are and mm-hmm. <laughs> the availability and the richness. And then he basically recruited me. to mm-hmm. yeah, come to Miyagi because it, <laughs> it's so rich. And he was yeah. right. I went to Miyagi yeah. and it started. So that was my first site. And I started to look around the local sources, mm-hmm. and it was, it was very well cataloged, and it was really rich, but at the same time, it was a lot of material.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: to be honest, at the beginning, I didn't know what to focus on. I, I knew mm-hmm. I was doing, I yeah. was focusing on youth and sending yeah. but mm-hmm. I didn't know. Uh, where to start. Yeah. And then I went to the Senen Dan um, building, which still mm-hmm. exists, which still operates a uh, mm-hmm. um, youth hostel. Mm-hmm. They have a massive, massive collection of documents from the wow. pre war yeah, period in their
0: storage. And Was I, it like nama like raw materials? Yes, kind of boxes. Just, wow. yeah. It's like treasure, but it's also like, where do you begin?
1: <laughs> I know. It's just, oh my gosh, uh, they don't even know what they were. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then so that's, that's how I started. And I used a framework called um, social mobility complex mm-hmm. um, in my book, and when you write a book, it's, you make it sound like the idea was already there and mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. framework is just so simple and here yeah. and from the very beginning, it, but it didn't, it didn't emerge until I went to Taiwan, mm-hmm. and in Taiwan I found the the village Beipu. I decided to focus on that um, village because I found. I found a local historian in the Shinichi mm. province mm-hmm. and he basically helped me call his friend and that mm-hmm. friend called his friend and mm-hmm. went further further away from the city and went into mm-hmm. a very remote uh, but beautiful village. And I could focus on these individuals and they mm-hmm. stored so much material from the
0: um, Japanese Period Japanese rule. Yeah, yeah. You know, use yeah,
1: institutes.
0: yeah. And I will say that the the images, right? A lot of the photographs. Yeah. Um, that you include.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. They amazing. He stored this. one, Huang wow. here. He was the former instructor of the Japanese yeah. Institute in yeah. He stored the entire library of archive, basically, basically wow. an archive. Yeah, albums and letters and his own diaries so Mm -hmm. yeah he had lots of great images yeah so and then i started to look into the taiwan case Mm -hmm. and it's also the interaction with the interviewee the guy Mm -hmm. was in the part of this machine of youth mobilization Mm -hmm. and his students and seeing their interactions today. I mean, they are mm-hmm. very old now since I left the village, but mm-hmm. they were so close and so tightly knit.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so they that gave me a better idea of what youthful experience meant mm-hmm. to them and what the Japanese ideology meant to them.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: didn't really strike me as brainwashing at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they, they yeah knew, yeah, they rationalized a lot, mm-hmm. but at the same time they knew what they were doing, and they they were proud of it too
0: mm-hmm, so yeah,
1: then it gave me an idea of what i 'm looking for that, that feeling of accomplishing something and yeah yeah, youth
0: transforming
1: inside, and then I went back to Miyagi again and found similar material mm-hmm. and, yeah, and Korea was another story. I had a, a lot more difficulty in lo- locating a village because I couldn't mm-hmm. find uh, individuals that I could talk to. I tried mm-hmm. other villages, but I ended up um this village, Kwansap village, because I found a publication that was mm-hmm. someone's interview of this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was already talking about the same nin in Japanese. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, I traced him down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think? Do you think this yeah. is because of the the sort of difference that the role of Japanese colonization plays in present day Taiwan and Korea, South Korea? Do you think it's harder for people to talk about? There
1: probably so, but it yeah. didn't strike me that these Korean, these former Korean models, mm-hmm. they they didn't. Stop themselves from talking about it. Yeah, they, they weren't hush hush about it. You
0: know? mm, mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: my interviewee even sang a martial song, and a Japanese military song. Mm, know, mm-hmm. Packed, yeah. And I was like, I felt very self conscious. <laughs> 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 he didn't care, but it feels like there's yeah. outlets to talk about yeah. what yeah. they believed in or what mm-hmm. they lived mm-hmm. back then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Your family members don't want to talk, want to hear about it. Yeah. I went there. They were very old, so they were like, okay, forget about political correctness and discuss what I experienced.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: helped me and probably helped um that I, I was from Japan and I was studying in the U.S. So mm-hmm.
0: that from that kind of cultural judgment or not. Yeah, yeah yeah you you encounter all kinds of ethnographical issues, um, and I, I also think that you were very brave to go ahead and, and encounter that because I think that a lot of historians in terms of disposition are very shy,
1: mm. except
0: for people who go right into oral history or whatever, but are very shy about living people. they like like the sources and like uh, because you just don't know what kind of ethnological, like ethnographical issue you're going to get into if you're a young Japanese woman studying in the U.S. But, but also I think it's interesting, this comment that they were old enough to feel a lot like they, they wanted to share. And I mean, maybe these interviewees would have wanted to share even when they were 50 or 40 or or 30, we don't know, but Mm -hmm. there does seem to be kind of a, there's an older person you're interviewing this desire to share their experience of what happened.
1: Yeah, I think so, and especially yeah. this is about youth. But yeah, yeah, youthful foundation seems to just just stay there in their passion mm-hmm. and can't forget their experience. And obviously, memory has an issue as, mm-hmm. you know, as mm-hmm. an accurate source of facts, mm-hmm. but uh, it also gives me a sense that how important this part of the history life mm-hmm. was to individuals as well. So yeah. that kind of gave me... But at the same time, this is a funny bit that I found. Yeah. That, so for young people who presumably believed in ideology, Japanese ideology, colonizers ideology, but it, it felt that they're so immersed in their local society and they're, mm-hmm. you know, they were doing great in local society, not necessarily... Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to serve the empire. So mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of step back and think about the power of empire itself and mm-hmm. start out, like, how much power did it have on
0: mm-hmm. their, mm-hmm.
1: their own sort of um, transformation
0: or mm-hmm. pursuit of success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so interesting is like your, your book, and I'd like you to explain your title because I think that your title really beautifully captures an, an argument within the words itself, but uh, your, your subtitle is, is ideology and rural youth mobilization in Japan and its colonies. And what I thought was interesting about your actual uh, work and your arguments is that you um, very much talk about ideology as it's experienced. And so, so I'm hearing you say this as well, where it's, it's like you're not really writing about ideology as something uh a psychological disposition or a or you know b- big ideology and i think that a lot of times we approach ideology or nationalism looking at, at very um uh, elite documents or you know propaganda pieces and we don't get a sense of the second part of what you know is mobilization we don't get a sense of like the link between um, somebody growing up in a very rural village
1: mm. and
0: whatever, uh, you know, the power elite are trying to actually do in Tokyo or something like that. Right. And so, oh, that, that I liked that you you didn't have the word ideology do a lot of work for you. I mean, it, it's in the title, but it's more like you're responding to it and trying to understand on this experiential level, what that meant for people and what i thought was really fascinating is so I, I also um read this with a group of japanese history scholars in tokyo we read it and we discussed it and what was interesting is that the discussion also went to the us military today mm-hmm. and i know that um you know we can't we need to think about situations and lives in their historical context and in their time and in their place but that's an experience close to me, as you know, my brother was in the U S military yeah. and that was kind of, and, and also it made me think a lot about, um, people who joined the military from Puerto Rico, mm. right? Like what is the, yeah. the, um, motivation and, uh, and very much that the joining and recruitment of the military in the U S today is it does mobilize this language about patriotism, but it's also about like, having access to education, like being able to fly cool helicopters, like, you know, and uh, this way to improve yourself, self-improvement, and so it's, it's, uh, I really liked that your book could speak to that, and our discussion kind of went that way, even though we're all Japanese historians of Japan. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to hear you say that you came from it from this position of feeling like you grew up with this pacifist education in post-war Japan, mm. um, and so you had this question of like, well, what makes people want to kill and die for this? And I feel like I grew up with a totally different set mm. of uh, ideas about about uh, nationalism or patriotism. But even coming from that different set, like it helps me understand. I don't know, the mechanics of, of nationalism, right, mm-hmm. of ideology. So you have this title, ideolo- you have this word ideology. I really think you you break it down in a way that's not about ideology with a capital I, but very experiential in a, in a very illuminating way. And I want to um, ask you at this moment, because I know that you've had some frustrations as a, as a scholar of East Asia, mm-hmm. writing about empire, you <laughs> had some frustrations with <laughs> scholars of Western history or Western society or empire uh, in a different context, uh, having to know that Mm. so that you can compare how Japanese empire is similar or different, Mm. but there's not necessarily like a a reverse imperative, like um, Western history still occupies this place of like defining the universals of how we define an empire or whatever. And, And can you speak to that a little bit? How to situate? the
1: Japanese empire
0: in the Western world. Yeah, like how to situate the Japanese empire and global empire, but also as a scholar of Japanese empire, if you can tell us kind of the pressures that you felt Mm. to situate Japanese empire vis-a-vis the other, you know, empires.
1: Right. Um, So in the grad school, I was, officially part of this program called International and Global History. So many of the classes I took in that program were about how to write global history. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily tell you how to write it, you know, there are so many ways to deal with it. But one thing that I learned, I learned greatly from Susan Peterson was was what was going on outside Japan, right? Like, what was going mm-hmm. on in the 1920s? Yeah, League of Nations and the yeah. mandate system worked. And uh, that, that was really new to me. And mm-hmm. I think, in retrospect, without that kind of exposure to, to the global history or Western history, I wouldn't have <laughs> on the similarity or pattern. Mm -hmm. inside the Japanese Empire. And Mm -hmm. obviously, if you start looking into the details of the Japanese Empire, you can totally see the difference between the metropole and colonies, or Mm -hmm. Taiwan and Korea, between Mm -hmm. these older colonies and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. But I think at this stage, I thought it was more important if someone says, listen, the Japanese Empire was so much more coherent in comparison to other kinds of empires and mm-hmm. this is deliberately so mm-hmm. uh, they they aimed to become and aim, aim to be coherent and that was the japanese way of building an empire so mm-hmm. I, I called the i called it nation empire that which is mm-hmm. the title of the book, right but yeah so, so i didn't really feel the pressure per se and i didn't mm-hmm. feel it, i it was my duty to prove that the Japanese were either similar or different, but I it was really helpful that I knew something about what was going on outside and how Japan deliberately deviated from it. Mm -hmm. So that helped me conceptualize how to present the Japanese empire Mm -hmm. to a wider audience. And I I hope that makes sense too. For example, historians of the French Empire, the British Empire. And they always they they are surprised when I talk about well intermarriage was not only allowed, but encouraged sometimes in the Japanese Empire and that blows their mind. So the idea of going down into rural villages and teachers try to make them into sending them members. Totally different level of, you know, state work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to highlight that
0: to the wider audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to say like, uh, like that your work was, you were like operating under these like pressures to, to <laughs> respond to Western historians. Um, I guess what I, what I just uh, mean is that a lot of, if you're going to write about a non-Western history in English, Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of framework and you do have to position it um vis-a-vis the history maybe your presumed audience would know right to put it delicately but i guess i just am also hearing and uh that that there's an enormous so that creates a certain kind of pressure but it's also an enormous benefit that um i mean what i guess i'm trying to say is that historians of empire Should know your work, (laughs) or, (laughs) or or, I mean, should consider if people are going to to be like a historian of empire. Hmm. uh, There should be a a a reckoning with, or uh, that there were many forms of statecraft and global empire, including the Japanese empire. And uh, you mentioned very briefly um, your title, and I do want to talk about this because I think that it's really beautifully like succinct because this is a, a concept and it's your title um a nation empire and i wonder if you can talk about your title to talk yeah. about some of your main arguments in your in your book too
1: right so nation empire is basically saying that nation building and empire building were the same thing for the japanese empire so when the Meiji government was established in 1868, they were facing the need to build a nation and build an empire at the same time. So yeah. many of the social engineering that they used in the metropole, and they were just still experimenting with it, mm-hmm. uh, they transplanted directly to Taiwan, directly to Korea, and sometimes Korean bureaucrats claimed that they were doing better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea, especially of uh, agrarianism, it's part Mm -hmm. of the new Japanese nationalism, the the Japanese empire, the Japanese nation was built upon the virtue of farmers and strength Mm -hmm. of loyal and hardworking farmers. This This is part of a new vocabulary of Meiji Japan. And that accidentally almost helped um, spread the ideology of we belong to this empire together Mm -hmm. even to young farmers in remote Mm -hmm. villages in Taiwan and Korea so in that sense nation empire was a sort of an assumption for many colonizers most of the colonizers and also teachers Mm -hmm. um, across Japan and also the colonies. But at the same time, I don't want to overemphasize how powerful this was. Mm, mm-hmm. like, um, so in a way, I wanted to show how it failed as well. Mm,
0: right? mm-hmm. The
1: nation building yeah. the building didn't, didn't succeed in the end. Yeah. And yeah. Jap- the Japanese people were often, the case, very racist. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they didn't accept anyone who
0: mm-hmm. didn't grow
1: up in Japan or who didn't mm-hmm. grow up in a Japanese family. Mm-hmm. So at the grassroots level it totally failed but there was mm-hmm. there was a drive on mm-hmm. the part of the state to, to make it happen.
0: Yeah it was it's so it's a I think that's a really important point it's really interesting to think about um, the failures and I think by coming from the grassroots perspective uh, you can see that quite clearly, right? Things that just didn't quite, um, you know, policies that were perhaps proposed or, or um, uh, you know, kind of ideals, ideologies mm. uh, that maybe just didn't work out when you look at people's lives, right? Yeah,
1: so it's, yeah the funny thing, it's just the local, colonial local societies were quite geared towards. Mm-hmm. Nationalization, assimilation, and nation mm-hmm. building, but then the Japanese masses failed them. Basically,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, I, yeah, it feels like I'm. Yeah, now I think of it, it. <laughs> <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> I'm
0: new <laughs> <your> conclusion. <laughs> yeah, but I, the
1: conclusion is that the blame should be both on the state, but not that's not enough.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. The Japanese people. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, so. So I'd like to also know, like, now that you're mentioning these uh, conclusions that you're thinking of in retrospect or something. Um, so I, I reading this also, I was just thinking about all of the kinds of exciting projects that could emerge from it, all of the stories that um, still could be told. Like there's the really fascinating story of the, uh, you know, very well-educated uh, Korean Seinan mm-hmm. Don member who had, um, you know, his... Uh, success mm-hmm. in social mobility, his like becoming, you know, a very good Japanese imperial subject and learning Japanese well and all this stuff. I mean, the way that that uh, totally collapsed and became a problem, mm-hmm. right? When yeah. like, the war ended, I yeah. mean, that kind of, uh, you, you include that, you know, more towards toward the end, but I was just thinking about like that story also yeah fascinating and and what are the other um i mean if you could if you could pursue it further or if you could kind of pass the baton and tell other researchers interested in topics like what do you think would be really rich work still right today? i well the obvious you know blind spot
1: in my book is women and i know a couple of new researchers are working on uh, women's education in colonial, mm. and colonial korea but I really hope they would look into the very rural cases because they mm-hmm. do face a lot of complicated politics. And mm-hmm. I'm sure if men who were at the, you know, who are treasured in mm-hmm. culture of masculinity mm-hmm. face all these kinds of politics, then women should have probably faced even more complicated mm-hmm. and transformation of, mm-hmm. um, of being rural, being mm, mm-hmm. I will be really interested in reading further on women, although I couldn't do it myself.
0: I, I will say, and this I've already told you this because I was telling you my reactions to the book, and one of my um, like criticisms, not really criticisms, is you do mention in the beginning that you don't really talk about gender. But, but when I was reading this book, I thought it was very much about masculinity, and it does make a lot of sense to focus on the experience of, of young men in the Seine Don, um agrarian youth particularly because they are the model youth right because mm-hmm. they are like uh have enjoy such a prestigious place within this nation empire um so i was like well your book to me is all about gender it's just about masculinity it's just not really about women um but uh yeah that kind of research sounds really exciting um to read about as well yeah. yeah, but I I presume it would be
1: so much more difficult because uh, materials mm-hmm. very limited. Yeah, even in comparison to my materials. Yeah, other areas. Uh, just in general, how generations and age work within historical investigation. Mm-hmm. We we'll assume that these concepts are quite static, but mm-hmm. now the be- now we know that it's not, yeah. you work on youth
0: in post Yeah. Yeah.
1: How did you, how did you, did you deal with the idea of generations and?
0: Well, the idea of generations, so, uh, so just a contextual thing. Yeah, I write about um, uh, the student movement in post-war Japan, mm-hmm. um, particularly focusing on the, the young female student. Um, I will I think my construction of my project, in a sense, like talking with you, had a similar um, beginning point, which is why are uh, young women seen as um, either politically, uh, uh, political victims, like Mm -hmm. too pure, too innocent, the ideal citizen, but potential political victims, or seen as too terrifying, totally inept, like can't be in politics and dangerous. Like why did people like fix what seemed to be more general free-floating anxiety about um, post-war democracy or, or mm-hmm. uh, social harmony on young women? Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly I, I would say that it's just kind of like an overlapping of ideologies of gender, age, class, because these mm-hmm. are educated young women. Um, uh, but in terms of uh, generations. It's funny. I don't really deal with like generation as a, as a concept that I try to deconstruct or anything like that. Mm. That would probably be worthwhile doing, especially because the sixties is when generation becomes a real market, like a, you oh, know, okay. the youth market or whatever. Um, I, but yeah, we know like with studies about the recent, you know, emergence of this te- the teenager as a social category. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to try to actually think about what does it mean to be a youth
1: yeah and um, there's not yeah. much done in our field in, in, you that's think true
0: Japanese history, or, history true. or in general. I know some people working more on childhood studies yeah right now yeah. and uh and that's interesting but yeah to to figure out what because especially also like looking at materials from the post-war my god the idea of your first love like the idea of of your first love and seishun you know youth and um, it's so idealized
1: Um,
0: and uh that's a that's a that's a freebie whoever wants to work on that that's like a free project (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: i'm now working on the zainichi koreans yeah can you talk about that a little bit Korean residents in Japan who were basically trapped after the war ended. So they were colonial subjects under the Japanese Empire. They were conscripted. Many of them were conscripted. So about two million were stuck wow. in Japan as of yeah. the end of the war. Most of them went back to South Korea, but mm-hmm. most of them came from South Southern tip of the Korea,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and but. Uh, about six hundred thousand or so, or more, mm-hmm. uh, still lived in Japan, and they experienced the post-war Japanese recovery, the Korean War mm-hmm. from afar, because they were mm-hmm. trapped in Japan. They couldn't mm-hmm. go back to either north or south. Yeah. And I'm looking now. I'm looking at the Cheonggyeong community who were well, pro north. Um, yeah, and yeah, Chelsea and I. I asked Chelsea a lot of questions about post-war Japan because it was, it's a new field to me. But there is a huge idea of Session, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. youthful days mm-hmm. uh, linked to their activism, the support hmm. the and nation building, yeah, uh, nation building.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Interesting. I, I, well, I just wanted to mention about about this new research. I again, what I kind of want to emphasize with your book, and having seen you from you know, um, uh, as a as a as somebody who like a refugee from political science. Maybe that's not fair. Put on, <laughs> but, you know, coming to history and like knowing your basic question and then constructing a, a very ambitious research project. Um, what is interesting is that you 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 condense it into such like lucid prose it's like very clear and it's very lucid and what i'm excited about this project is that we've had conversations about like how difficult things can be in terms of even logistics and so i i want to emphasize that i i think what's fun about you and your work is like you're not really afraid of logistical difficulties <laughs> right like, like logistical challenges like you you managed to get through them and um Maybe you want to talk a little bit about like uh, the, the new research a little bit and kind of like the soap of what you're looking at.
1: Yeah. Um, so I have a research partner. And this was originally her project. Her name is Kumi Cho. And uh, Chelsea and I are both were both friends from grad school. And she ended up leaving academia, but I I met her again, and she was still passionate about her her community. She was from the Chonyon community, so we started to do this research together uh, in a very small scale. And we got together in Japan for the first time in Tokyo, and then we started to visit the Korea University in Tokyo, and you know, and started interviewing the Chonyon people, and it's it was so new to me i was so ashamed that i didn't know anything about about them and i i'm a, i'm a very average you know japanese citizen who grew up in japan not knowing that i there were korean neighborhoods around my you know near my house but i never really knew about them and i could visit them and they were like I have no idea there was this yeah. branch office of the Chonyon and they yeah. around it. But so it w- it's been a it w- it's been a journey of new discoveries. And without Kumi, I had no idea how to do this research. Mm-hmm. But it really fascinates me because they do have a very unique view of living in Japan. They have very different geographical understanding of the Japanese archipelago because they see it in terms of Korean neighborhoods and their Korean schools,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they have so much closer relationship to North Korea, obviously, partly mm-hmm. because their relatives and family members live there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they went back and forth um, between North Korea and Japan, even now, mm-hmm. and but they do have relatives for, and the origin of their families in South Korea, so they mm-hmm. were found in between South and North. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he has been being my eyes eyes mm-hmm. and ears <laughs> mm-hmm. just to go across all these human boundaries, cultural boundaries linguistic yeah. boundaries yeah. And yeah he she was she has been interviewing uh, North Korean defectors both in South Korea in Japan, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that she Kumi is a graduate of uh, the Korean schools, which is Mm -hmm. run by the Mm Chongryon. They do have a very, very uh, strong community identity, Mm -hmm. um, backed up by their historical understanding of, you know, decolonizing themselves in the midst Mm -hmm. of former colonizers. Mm -hmm. So they have a very strong, proud identity, and even those people who escaped North Korea as long as, as soon as Kumi says, well, I went to Rihak-kyo, and then mm-hmm. they would totally open up and they would like, oh, which one? And who's yeah. your father? And who's your grandpa? And you know, yeah. connect immediately. Yeah. And these defectors the are often politicized, right? And they mm-hmm. are expected to say negative things about North Korea. Mm-hmm. And even, yeah, many of them are, were former Chinese, because Kumi had this, their his her her own background. Yeah, they could talk about how they felt when they moved from Urihakkyo to North Korea. Mm-hmm. It was very intimate detail that yes. I would yeah. never imagine getting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so also to bring it back to to ideas about generation or mm-hmm. youth, right? Um, it's interesting that that there's this sense of history the sense of community that also um, these certain institutions right that that will then link across these generations because again you're dealing with this ethnographic thing of being young researchers yeah you're doing older people um and uh and that can tell you a lot about the interactions of the the generations, generational memories, shared ones, things like
1: that. Yeah, Yeah, generations are even more important for Zainichi family. Mm -hmm. They they have a very distinct way of looking at, you know, the generations, like the first Mm -hmm. generation, second generation. They they belong to the late second generation, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I can now understand why they do that. Mm -hmm. It it was so unique at the beginning.
0: Mm yeah very interesting okay so so for for future researchers who want to so that's your next project which i'm really excited about um because i just think that this book you you took so many complicated uh you know and it's not even just like your research logistics but again talking about with interviews interpersonal relationships like people sharing songs with you. I mean, these are also the things that are just, history is multimedia, and then we reduce it to like a (laughs) uh, text, right? Yeah. Um, What would you do different? Um, many things. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it takes decades to to be able to write something like this, so I suppose there are many things you would do. There are many things,
1: but. For now, I'm okay with. It. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about the new project too. So I hope, and I'm still obviously interested in the Japanese Empire, mm-hmm. European Empire, and rural-urban dip- divide. Yeah,
0: I think that uh, this will encourage discussions about rural ideology. Uh, Every scholar's nightmare but maybe also dream is to have some young, ambitious scholar come along and then and <laughs> say, you're wrong because I went to this village and found blah, blah, blah. Um, but we should all be so lucky. I think about this sometimes with my work. It's like, prove me wrong. I love to have this be a discussion yeah. rather than just one one final thing. But I think that it has opened up a lot and um, and related a lot of stories that, yeah, I don't really think get have not been told before, do you think it will be translated into Japanese, Korean, Chinese? Are there any thoughts about that?
1: I don't know. Um, maybe in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i men- mentally ready to present this to East Asian audience, but eventually, yes. I would love to have feedback from Japanese, Korean, Chinese readers as well.